Okay. Great. Okay, we're live and recording. Yeah. Hi. So, I am going to be leading the interview today because our sage for the day is Archness City Devi Dasi. Um, I, ever since she started this series, I've been. Um, I thought, well, everybody wants to know about Archness City also. Um, she came up with this idea and it's really nice to hear these um, devotee stories and their hero's journey. Um, so I told Archana that I wanted to interview her. So that's what we're doing today. So this is probably gonna be the best one yet. Hold on. Yeah, because you're doing the interview. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. I'm just <laughs> listening. Okay. okay. So welcome Archana City and all the devotees. Um, we're excited to hear your story today. Mm. Um, I'm just going to read your biography. Okay. As is customary. <laughs> so Archana City Devi Dasi is a disciple of Srila Prabhupada and has been a practitioner of bhakti for the past 45 years. She has a master's degree in social work and has been working as a psychotherapist since 1990. She's written over 30 articles for Back to Godhead magazine, the main magazine for the International Society for Christian Consciousness, and authored chapters for a parenting book and a relationship book. She recently published a book, The Vaishnav Marriage Challenge. Most of her writing involves understanding our psychology and making it favorable for progressing in spiritual life. She has developed and presented many seminars and workshops geared toward helping practitioners live a balanced and healthy lifestyle while pursuing their highest ideals. She took shelter of Srila Bhivi Tripurari Swami in 2002 and has been active in his Sangha for the past 20 years. So that is a brief bio of Archana City. Um, so we're going to start with the, um, we're just having a conversation in Archana's living room is how we're trying to imagine this. So um, mm. going with the hero's journey um, setup that you've Kind of arranged all of these um but speak as freely as you would like um can you tell us about any significant events in your early life that would have helped you come to bhakti or wherever you'd like to start yeah thanks um i would say that um <clears throat> my life started off with a lot of chaos in terms of moving a lot. Um, I had a, a very um, stable family for the most part, um, except my father worked as an engineer and he worked for a company that contracted out to the military. So we were constantly moving. I was born in El Paso, Texas, and then we moved to 
Philadelphia, and then we moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and then we moved to Washington State, and then we moved to back to Philadelphia, and then we moved to Rhode Island, and then we moved. So we were just all over the place. And when you're a, a small person growing up, friendships are so important and feeling like you belong. And that was disrupted. And I was constantly having to make new friends, fit into new situations. And so it, I think it was the kind of a beginning of like a sense of detaching from the world because I realized that nothing was permanent at a young age, everything was in flux and could change at any moment. So I had that kind of realization. And I was gonna read a little poem that I actually won an award for when I was 10 years old. And, um, <laughs> and I think it sums up a lot of how how I was feeling as a child, um, and it was called Lost. That was the name of it. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's yeah, it's kind of prosy poetry, so it shouldn't shouldn't be too too much. But I will read it slowly. So, clouds push through the gray sky. A small, thin girl stood on the sand, her face streaked with tears and her hair filled with sand and salt water. The beach stretched on for miles and miles without another soul in sight. Sand fleas hopped around noiselessly, kicking bits of sand up into the air. Now only a faint light was in sight. Small drops of rain hit her tiny face. She was lost. So, God, I'm getting emotional reading that. <laughs> it was like, it was, uh, it was such a strong feeling that I had when I was writing it of just how lost I felt in the world. Um, we could, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just, I mean, I mean, I remember looking out my bedroom window and it was actually, we were living in Washington state at the time on an island and it was a beautiful sunny day, which was a very rare occasion and on the island because it rained about 300 days out of the year. And I remember thinking, how sad I felt because now I was supposed to be enjoying because it was so nice out, but I didn't know how to enjoy in the world. And, um, and I felt a lot of despair in that moment. And that was when I actually wrote that, that poem. So it brought back a lot of um, memories just reading that, so. Thank you. Yeah, so. My teenage years, I would say, I kind of entered into those. Um, and I didn't have any spiritual upbringing in my family. I was, my parents were both um, reformed Jews, um, Jewish tradition, but they weren't, my father had grown up in a more 
Orthodox family, but he had pretty much become an atheist through his life. So I didn't get much of any training in, in anything, although I was very attracted on the few times that we did go to the synagogue. I was very attracted to the whole sense of ritual and yeah, there's something very comforting about being there. Um, but I saw, I can see in retrospect that Krishna protected me because I probably would have, you know, gone, jumped into that wholeheartedly. And um, that I could have, that would have, it would have been a harder thing to leave had that been the case, you know. Mm -hmm. You said you were attracted to like the ritual aspect? Yeah, just the ritual and the, the singing, you know, the, mm -hmm. he, it was all in, in Hebrew, but there was just something I just, I just loved about the whole atmosphere. There was something different about it than just the material, you know, the material energy. It had some different flavor to it. That was mm -hmm. something that attracted me to that. Mm -hmm. And I also, when I was a little girl, I remember my mother was reading me a book and there was a prayer in the book that I loved and I I learned I actually learned it I memorized the prayer and I would say it every day for years and years and it was a kind of a, I maybe you've heard this prayer of father we thank thee for the night and for the pleasant morning light for rest and food and loving care and all that makes the world so fair. Help us to do the things we should to be to others kind and good. And all we do in work or play to love each other better day by day. So it really was like a bhakti prayer, you know, and it, and I would say it without fail every night until probably I was 15 or when I really got into more Maya. But um, yeah, so those were some of the, the hints of maybe something, something spiritual brewing inside or some, you know, the lack of connection with the material world, being attracted to some little pieces of spirituality. Mm -hmm. and. But as a teenager, you know, I got involved in drugs, sex, rock and roll, you know, trying to find some meaning and purpose in, in life through those things. Um, but they didn't, they didn't pan out. And um, so they had a, yeah. Were you still um, traveling a lot? Like, had you, was there any time during, before you, moved out or whenever that you had settled in some place that you yes. developed friendships and uh-huh yeah at 13 my father actually changed jobs because he saw that it was just so hard on we I was one of three children and we were all definitely struggling with that situation so he he got a job in <clears throat> in Baltimore and that's kind of where we ended uh -huh. up staying for some some time I actually ended up going to college near there and um stayed in that area even after I joined became a, a devotee uh -huh. so, mm -hmm. okay 
Yeah, good question. Um, I'd say probably the most significant thing that happened in my teen years was um, my brother and I, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't big into drugs at all because I knew I had a very addictive personality. I got addicted to cigarettes. I got addicted to um, ice cream. <laughs> I mean, I had my different <laughs> addictions. That... What's wrong with that? <laughs> so I was really afraid of taking, you know, drugs because I knew how how addictive my personality was. So, um, but on this one occasion, my brother, I had a brother that was a, a year older than me, and we decided to try LSD together with another friend. And so we were in, um, we were at some beach. I don't even remember which beach it was, but we, so we tried it and my brother never came off of it. He, he, yeah, days after having taken LSD, he was still quite, quite um, psychotic. And mm -hmm. um, so that started a long journey for him. He was 16 at the time. I guess you I mean really, like he never came off it? Like, like he never came off never. it. And uh -huh. so he ended up spending months and months and months every year in psychiatric hospitals and oh, wow. um and when they you know they put him on drugs that would bring him very down off of the you know mm -hmm. address some of the psychotic features of his of what was going on with him but they would make it it made him very depressed and so he would come home and he'd go back to school for a while and um and then he'd stop taking whatever medication it was because he didn't like the way it made him feel and then he would be back in the hospital again so that went on for about five years until he decided he'd have an, he had enough and he ended his life he oh yeah we were both in we were both at the university of maryland together <clears throat> and he was li actually living in a buddhist house those namrian kyo people and mm -hmm. um, trying to find, he was trying to find some spiritual meaning in his life. And anyway, he ended up, he, he hung himself, he hanged himself in the basement of that house he was living in. So that was a pretty intense experience for me on many levels. Um, one was, um, because I was having my own existential crisis at that time. I was, I think I was 21 then. And I just, you know, was really thinking myself is, you know, could, is suicide a shortcut to mm -hmm. liberation? Because I had this real sense that I was a soul and I was trapped inside of my body. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get out. So when my brother did that, I was actually wondering, did he know something I didn't know? And was he actually on the right path? And I'm on the wrong path because I'm stuck here in this world. And all I see is su yeah, suffering, suffering everywhere. Mm -hmm. So um, 
So I had this idea that I wanted to ask people that I had some regard for, you know, people were that I kind of considered like my gurus in, in the university world. And um, I was a graduate student at that time. I had finished my undergraduate work in psychology. And I was- So let me just ask one, um, did you said, um, so that was him, like when you took LSD um, and it started him on this, you said like five year kind of in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And um, like, I was wondering what, um, what do you think inspired you or got you interested in mental health? Um, and mm. um, was it that, um, that experience of being around him or? Yes, that's an excellent question. Yes, actually. I mean, I always had a sense about <clears throat> being a counselor of some kind because I was the kind of kid that people would come and talk to about their problems. And I just, mm -hmm. that just, you know, so it seemed like kind of a natural, a natural direction for me to go in as far as occupation. And, but as far as the actual mental health piece of it, yes, it was, <clears throat> I would go and visit my brother a lot. And I would spend time on the unit with all these young teenage teenagers with you know psychiatric problems and mm -hmm. it was it, in some ways I found it very fascinating and I and I, so I wanted to understand more about mental health issues and mm -hmm. so so yeah so that did inform my decision to uh, major in psychology in undergraduate school okay yeah so sorry, I interrupted you. You you were saying you were um, asking your gurus around the, the university. Yeah. About, uh -huh. yeah. So I had, I actually had, I should say that I met the devotee. Well, I had two friends that in 1974 had left college and um, become devotees, and they had actually come back to visit me at one point. I didn't know where they lived or anything but they came and brought me a Bhagavad Gita it was the Macmillan soft cover very large book <laughs> and they also gave me a some chanting beads and um yeah they they made me prom they didn't tell me anything about Krishna consciousness being about God, it was just kind of like this could, you know, this could help you, you know, be more peaceful, uh, more centered. And they said, try, just try chanting one round. Um, so I agreed to that. Um, and then, you know, they, they left and um, I did sit down after they left. And I remember sitting on, on my cold tile floor of my dorm and chanting around and feeling absolutely nothing from it. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel bad. I just didn't feel anything. And I just thought, oh, you know, they were kind of into a lot of different things. And so I just put the book away, put the beads away and just kind of forgot about it. So now this is two years later, I'm going through my, this major existential crisis and um, interviewing people that 
I'm my poetry teacher. I have um, a supervisor that I, I actually worked at the counseling center at that time doing, I wasn't doing counseling, but I was um, doing a lot of things for, they were doing research projects and I was doing some things for that. And so I, I went and, and just probably there were 10 people on my list of people that I had these questions for. And one of my questions was, is suicide a shortcut to liberation? So you can imagine that that raised a few eyebrows because here I was, you know, this was shortly after my brother had committed suicide and you're a high risk that makes you a higher risk if you pass. So your risk factors are, risk are factors. going up with everything, every question. And, absolutely. And, and also because I, I had, you know, I was, I was a very outgoing person and very involved in the university. And about two months before that, I had really, there had just been a, a whole inner and internal change going on in me where I just didn't, I didn't want to be part of that world anymore. And I didn't, so I had really separated from a lot of my friends and I wasn't, I, I just wasn't involved in the same kind of, at the same kind of level that I have been. And I think there was already some concern that I was going through, um, depression or something, which I really wasn't. I think it, I have to say that that was probably the happiest time of my life because I felt, I felt like I was on a quest, a spiritual <laughs> quest. So I was excited about that. And I was my, I changed my life in a lot of ways during that time. Um, I had stopped smoking cigarettes. I had become a vegetarian. I had, um, I was even sleeping on the floor, which, why? And, and, I, and I was going to bed early and I was getting up early in the morning and I was riding my bike to a park and meditating. And so my life had changed very dramatically. So when I started asking these questions, you, you know, it, 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 if there were alarms going off in people's heads and I had you know a couple of people started talking to each other and so then they were like wow you know we're really concerned about her you know it seems like she's you know she's really in a probably a you know she's probably in, in a major depression and we think she's suicidal so they for, are for you it was more philosophical questions and absolutely. considering life and exactly exactly so they arranged an intervention and I had been <laughs> involved in interventions but on the other side <laughs> I'd never been the mm -hmm. the uh, you know the um subject of a of an intervention so when I got when they they invited me to this I walked into the room and there were about 12 people in the room and most of them were the people that I had gone to and we're talking to mm -hmm. about my my questions so anyway the person who was heading up the meeting um she said to me she said we think that you have been under a lot of stress and 
we've noticed how you have kind of distanced yourself from your activities and um, that you're just not as involved and, and we're, we all have concerns and um, we think it would might be really good for you to um, take a little break for a weekend and sign yourself into a hospital. Yeah. And so I realized what was going on. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I have really got to keep it together here because this is precarious and I do not want to be um, involuntarily, you know, yeah. committed to the, to the hospital. So I, I just really, I prayed, I just really prayed um, to my God, who I, you know, had some conception of, that you give me the strength to stay calm, cool, collected, and that I can, you know, convince them that I'm, I'm okay. So, you know, I, I, I somehow was able to do that. I was able to say, I'm, I'm not depressed. This is actually a really exciting time of my life. And I, I said, I'm asking these questions, not because I'm suicidal. It's because I do want to know, I want to understand, you know, mm -hmm. is this life, is there a purpose to this life? Am I supposed to live this life for something more than just getting married, getting a job, getting a house, having kids, getting a bigger house, going into a retirement home, getting uh -huh. old, getting diseased and dying. Is there something more? That was so, there's actually a, a therapist at the counseling center who was there that had, who was a Buddhist. I didn't know him very well, but he kind of caught the drift of what I was talking about. He could see that I was, you know, and he kind of came to my aid during that meeting and kind of said, yeah, I think she's all right. I think this is just, she's just going through, you know, um, she's, she's just going through a spiritual awakening. So I really appreciated that comment. And I was like, Thank you, Krishna. I it wasn't Krishna, but God. <laughs> Thank you. And um, and then they, you know, they were going to let me go. And I was just thinking. Um, and one of the people said, "Well, can we help you with anything?" And I said, "Yeah, I'd like to find my Hari Krishna friends. I, I, they're the two people who are on my list that I wanted to talk to, but I have no idea how to get in touch with them or contact them." And so um, anyway, they didn't know, they didn't know how to help me with that. But anyway, they let me leave. And it was this beautiful day out. And I remember pushing the door, there were these big you know, metal doors and pushing them open and walking out into this beautiful, beautiful early, you know, it was a late summer day. And, I, and who was standing there? but my two devotee friends that I hadn't seen in two years and they were all shaved up and in dhotis and I never saw them like that. Um, oh, wow. They were like these angels, you know, and they were glowing. And I was just like, I was like, oh my God, Krishna is God. This is God. How could this have happened any other way? And so, um, 
I went up, you know, they were like surprised to see me, <laughs> surprised to see me as I was to see them. And we sat down and we talked for like two hours and I asked them all my questions and I got very wonderful answers. And um, that's amazing. You walk out of possible involuntary commitment intervention. <laughs> voluntarily commit myself <laughs> and that's exactly what happened because I was like can I go home with you I just like begged them to take me and they said sure just go pack a little bag and come and meet us back here and you can come back. and you were in your master's program I was in my master's program yeah I was in my sec I had one more year left and um So I did, I went and packed a little bag. And I remember this, I, I remember this girl comes up to me and she goes, God is calling you. God is calling you. And I looked at her and I said, I know, I know. I think she was probably one of the Reverend Moon people, you know, and she was, so, but I just took it as a, another confirmation that God was calling me. And um. So anyway, I went, you know, went to the back with them. I, they were living in Potomac, Maryland at the temple, which was about, I don't remember, maybe 45 minutes away from the university. It wasn't real far. Mm -hmm. And um, Prabhupada was playing. They had a, him singing. He was chanting. It was a, mm -hmm. and I was just so like, just the sound of his voice and and hearing the, the, him chanting just really transported me into a whole other realm and they took me to the temple and um I couldn't see the deities I mean I I, I saw them but I didn't see them you know that that I, I remember that was not something that impressed me in the beginning and they gave me prashadam, which was out of this world. And so I, I spent the night there and, and then I decided I, I, have to, I have to do this. This is what I've been called for. I'm supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to like join these people. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, this is what year? This was 1976. So, um, yeah, on Monday I went back and I withdrew from school. Oh, wow. I know, it's crazy. And I actually had an experience that uh, this was <clears throat> one of those mystical experiences that happened twice. Um, but this was the first time it happened. There was a point where I just, I started to think, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, it's like, how am I going to tell my parents? How am I going to, you know, all these, you know, like the, the realistic aspects of what I was doing kind of like flooded me. And I was like, this is crazy. This is absolutely insane. What am I doing? And when I started thinking like that, a literal, a literal fire totally surrounded me. And I was like, okay, Krishna, 
I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay. And then the fire just went away. <laughs> it was totally amazing, whatever it was. I don't know if it was an hallucination, whatever it was. It, you know, uh -huh. it was. This is when you're like at the school or something with drawing? Or? Yeah, it was when I was uh -huh. at the school drawing. And um, anyway, I, I went through with it. And, you know, of <laughs> course, my, my parents were devastated. My younger brother, who had just started at the university, he was devastated. I mean, I, I, it was, and I just, I had to do it. You know, there was just no question that, mm -hmm. you know, it had all been orchestrated to bring me to this point of surrendering. And yeah, and I moved into, that was it. I moved into the ashram and I stayed there for 12 years. I lived in the ashram for 12 years in Potomac. So it was like a clean break from school and everything. You just moved into the temple and that was it. That was it. Wow. And the challenges that I had during that time, well, there were a lot of challenges, of course. Um, one of the things I, I, I would say that most of my challenges were based around um, yeah, just my um, misguided thinking and, you know, um, yeah, wanting to, um, I, I was very image conscious as, uh, you know, in my life. I, and I wanted people to like me. I wanted people to respect me. I was very good at reading people. I had a, mm -hmm. an, you know, and I would do something that I guess we would call maybe shape shifting. Like I could pretty much take on anybody's point of view and I mm -hmm. could pretty much, you know, be, you know, become what I thought people wanted me to be. And, mm -hmm. um, so that was something that I could see that a lot of my challenges and lessons came to try to help me with that, the um, image consciousness and things like going out on Harinam and, you know, out on, in Georgetown, which was not far from where I'd gone to school. And so I was always having friends see me and come up mm -hmm. to me. And that was at the height of the, um, you know, the whole anti-cult movement, you know? Yeah. So, so I'm thinking, okay, they think I'm in a cult and I'm just a crazy person. And, you know, so that would, you know, that would affect me a lot. So I had to, you know, those are things I had to work on. And then my service became going to the airport. And so again, running, I would always run into friends in the airport and and what I would do as totally a counterphobic kind of behavior of, you know, I would go up to them, try to be really confident, and I would distribute books to them and get donations from them and feel like totally, I just would be so embarrassed and humiliated. But I knew that's what Krishna wanted me to do, that he wanted me to, you know, get out of this consciousness of, I'm the body and I have this image to portray. So there was a lot of those kind of tests that were really hard. 
And then also having, you know, a sense of pride, you know, in certain my, you know, I was fairly competent, um, fairly intelligent. Um, you know, so I, a lot of the young people, the young girls that had joined Krishna consciousness at that time were some, you know, there, there were young girls that came at 16 and didn't, hadn't even graduated from high school. So I, I always thought that I knew better than them, you know, and I also was easy for me to get up in the morning. It was easy for me to go to the morning program. Chanting Japa was not I mean, it was something I liked to do. So, so I would, you know, there was, there was a sense of pride involved in that. So, so Krishna oftentimes would um, put me in situations where I, like, I, I had a lot of health, a lot of health issues and crises during my first few years as a devotee. And I got quite, quite sick. Um, and it was very humbling because I couldn't go to the morning program sometimes, and I couldn't, you know, do the things that I was thinking that I had some control over. And so it was, uh, it was very humbling. And mm -hmm. so that was, a, that was, a, those, you know, the health issues were really very challenging. And some of the other things that I, I struggled with were, um, yeah, just, yeah, similar of being judgmental and, you know, critical of other, you know, of other devotees. And so, and not always being empathic. And so I would always find that when I wasn't like that, Krishna would put me in a very similar situation to whatever it was that I wasn't being empathic about. And um, mm -hmm. so those were the kind of challenges and mo more internal than external. I mean, there were a lot of external things that could I could tell stories about that were challenging <laughs> would be, I mean, they would seem you challenging. Want to <laughs> One or two. Right. Um, yeah, well, there were just, um, yeah, one or two challenging things. Well, we didn't always have heat. We had this radiant heat in the, in the um, ashram. It was an old building. Um, it had been a horseback riding farm with a house on it when the devotees had purchased it. And there wasn't, they hadn't done much in the way of renovations or anything. When I moved in, they had just moved in. So we had this radiant heat that would constantly be breaking. So it was, you know, it was cold there in the winters. So sometimes we wouldn't have, you know, any heat in the building. So that was challenging. Another thing was the building was infested with cockroaches and I'd never seen cockroaches growing up. You know, it just wasn't, even in the dorms, I never saw them. So the, they were just swarms of them. I mean, they must have, there was, 
a display at one of the museums. And I used to distribute, you know, downtown where the they had all the museums in Washington, DC. And one of them had seven generations of cockroaches. What it, you know, and that was the display in the museum. And I, I go in there to use the bathroom and I would see that room and I'd say, oh, that looks like the ashram. I mean, it was just, it was, it was bad. So that was, that was challenging. Um, and there were some illicit things going on in terms of men, women things. Um, we had a groper, uh, one of the brahmacharis that would come and put his hands in the window at night and grope women's <laughs> body parts. Um, so those were all things that were, were, were challenging, but somehow, I don't know, somehow um, the external things weren't, didn't bother me so much as it was more the internal struggles uh -huh. that were really the things that um, were really challenging. And so what do you think helped you persevere? through those yeah, internal, that, internal yeah. challenges? I would say um, definitely Joppa. Um, Joppa was like something that I, I, I felt a lot of um, comfort from and kind of like Prabhupada used the word prophylactic to describe chanting japa and i felt like when i chanted and i devotees would sometimes ask me to leave the temple room because i chanted so loud and um <laughs> like i i was like it, i would have a headache after japa period because i'd be really crying out every day because my mind was really was a mess at that time and um yeah, when I would chant like that, I, I would be able to, yeah, it felt like I was protected with some kind of, you know, invisible energy around me. But well, and it sounds like you were because the yeah, the external things were not as bad. And yeah, and and just so everybody knows, to this day, Archana City's Sudna is like lines on a stone. Every morning she gets up, she chants all of her japa. I think still pretty loud, probably. Not as in front bad of her, as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> in front of her deities, she sits down and she chants and she doesn't do anything else, I don't think, until she's done, practically. But I definitely noticed that's um, mm. it's obvious that Japa is very prophylactic for you. Yes, yes. It's got helped me got, get through all the, the messiness of my life and yeah, and so some of the, you know, the more recent challenges and difficulties, of course, everyone, probably most of you know that my dear partner, husband, the last 32 years passed away a few months ago from cancer. And that was quite a journey being on that, um, that journey with him for five and a half years after he was diagnosed. And yeah, just, um, you know, really having to face that um, 
yeah, this is this is this is this is happening. That all the things that we read in the Bhagavatam, you know, life being impermanent and losing loved ones, um, all of those things. You know, now it's it's like it's real. It's real, and having to to really face them in a in a sargrahi way and yeah there were some i think the hardest part of going through um his illness was trying to make the right decisions for his treatment because there were so many options and i felt you know, I felt so um, responsible in some ways. So I was the one in the family that was the researcher and the, you know, I would, and so, you know, he put a lot of, my husband put a lot of stock in um, my opinions about things. And so that was really hard for me because I felt I could lead him down the wrong road and, and I didn't want him to, um, make his decision based on my feelings. I wanted him to make his decisions based on what he felt was best for himself. So that I had to, you know, really let go at some point and realize that it's all in Krishna's hands. I'm not responsible. I'm, I, I just have to do my part. If he's mm -hmm. meant to, if he's meant to get better, he's going to get better. And if he doesn't get better, Krishna has a, um, a very exciting adventure awaiting him on the other side. And I don't know what that is going to look like for him, but I know it's, it, and as you know, his, as his cancer got worse, it was, you know, his pain level increased and, you know, it was like, it helped, I guess, both him, to, you know, helped the both of us to detach from, you know, him staying in this world because there was a, you know, a period of time where it was very much like, we've got to find a cure. We've got to find a cure. We've got to get him better. But mm -hmm. then having to let go and let Krishna and, and seeing in, you know, in the aftermath of it all, just how much Krishna has been taking care of me after afterwards you know it's just and all the devotees and support and love and um so that's that's been a, a real blessing if you want to could you tell us how you met karnamrita prabhu and maybe yes. about your um because i you do so much relationship counseling I think it'd be interesting for people to know about your relationship and um, maybe lessons you learned. I mean, that's a probably the most major lesson, yeah. but um, any lessons you learned from your relationship with him or um, family relationships? Yeah, yeah. Well, there are <clears throat> there are a lot of lessons just well, from your journey. Yeah, I guess for my journey. Yeah, well, my first, I was actually married um, before I had met Karnamita to a devotee. Um, and what year did we get married? We got married like in 
1980, 81 or something. And um, he was a, a nice devotee, but we were very incompatible. And um, it worked out fine because we were both living in the, in the ashram at the time. So you can pretty much have any kind of relationship when you're kind of brahmatrini, brahmachari kind of couple which we were, we, we were very um, kind of estranged from each other from the beginning. And um, at some point in, in our relationship, we did have a child together. That's my beautiful Nitai Garanga. And um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. But he, you know, he ended up kind of leaving Krishna consciousness and um, really got involved in, in intoxication. And so that relationship kind of naturally came to an end because of all of that. And it's interesting because the temple president at the time told me, well, you know, you can leave a fallen husband, Prabhupada said, but you can't get remarried. So I was like, okay, I won't get remarried. I was like, I mean, I wasn't particularly at that point I didn't, it wasn't on my radar, that's for sure. Um, but my husband was traveling with um, Maniti Swami, and he was looking for a wife. And Maniti Swami knew me from, from this, you know, I, he had been in Baltimore for a while. And so he knew me and he saw me and he pointed me out to Karnamrita and said, now she would make a good wife for you. So, um, so that planted a seed in, in Karnamrita's mind. Or, so, um, yeah, he started putting uh, flower garlands on my car and I didn't know who they were, <laughs> I, you know, I had no idea and, you know, bouquets from Radharani's bouquets. And you know, <laughs> I just thought it was the Pujari or something, you know, it was just didn't, you had didn't, a secret admirer. I had a secret admirer, and I, but I didn't, I didn't know it at the time that it was him. And then at some point, he actually wrote me a letter, and he said he wrote, he really, wrote, oh, before that, he was, I, um, he was teaching Nitai Garanga how to play Murdanga at four, mm -hmm. he was four years old at the time, and, um, so that, so we had a little bit of exchanges then. And um, so then he, he, he was bold enough to write me a letter and hmm. tell me he, he would like to get to know me. And um, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to go through that again, you know, <laughs> another, another failed relationship. I mean, just maybe I'm not met for this. And the temple president said I should never get another, you know, I shouldn't think about another relationship but he was very persistent and um so eventually i did cave in to spending some time with him and um yeah and event we eventually we did get the blessings from the vaishnavas to to get married and that, and then shortly i did move i end up moving out of the ashram and then it was the whole thing of neither one of us having worked in the world for, mm -hmm. we didn't have any, any careers. And, and here we were, you know, with, with, a, with a 
child and um so we had our messiness and trying to establish ourselves in the world and i was working selling computers a friend of mine had a a business doing that and so i was able to make some money doing that but i just hated it and and then krishna arranged it that my I was actually my younger brother convinced me to go back to school and um which I ended up doing. I went back to school. That was in 1990. I went back to school and got my master's in social mm -hmm. work. And then you started working? Started right working after. right after, yeah. And um, I started, both Karnamita and I started doing couple, some couples counseling because there was such a need at that time. We had been doing little workshops and seminars together um we started doing that right away when we had gotten together so um yeah it was really it, it was quite it was a lot of fun actually we we would um do say i remember when we did a the brahmin and the prostitute the, a skit of that and we did a whole seminar around it and mm -hmm. um of course, I, I, I was the prostitute, he was the Brahmin. <laughs> and, uh, and we took that, we did, did that gig around different places and then and the workshop that went with it. And that was quite popular. And, <laughs> and we, had, we had a really good relationship. I mean, people used to tell us that we gave them hope for the Grahasta Ashram because they hadn't really seen a lot of good examples of husbands and wives and yeah we, we have very I know you guys were one of the first kind of normal householder couples <laughs> I had met um mm. you know I I'd been used to like practically still temple devotee householders um you know living like the brahmachari brahmacharini which you know they don't have as much of a actual relationship um with each other so yeah yeah and it and it, you know it felt like it was really important to both of us to show a good example of how you can make your home an ashram because we hadn't seen too many examples of that ourselves so mm -hmm. we wanted to be able to do that and i do have to say that the thing i'm most grateful to Karnamita for was his persistence in um, listening. He started listening to, to Guru Maharaj. Um, he started, he got the Sangha newsletter and he, he loved it. He said, I, I want to get his CDs. So he started getting his CDs mm -hmm. and I didn't want to listen to him. I was like, no, he's not in ISKCON. We can't, we're not supposed to listen to people outside of ISKCON. I was the more, you know, conservative one and the more, and he, he usually would like do, a, you know, if I didn't want him to do something, he would usually just totally surrender to it and just not bother with it anymore. But he was adamant, no. And he would just play his CDs in the house. Well, we'd be dressing the DDs together and he would play his CDs. And so after a while, I started actually listening to them and I thought, wow, these are really good. <laughs> it's really, this is wonderful. God. And then my husband said, 
can we invite him to come and visit? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. He's and I'm thinking in my mind, he would never come. You know, he was in mm-hmm. California. We were on the other side, you know, and he's a sannyasi. Why is he gonna come to some householder's house? And you know, I just mm-hmm. didn't expect it. So I said, Yeah, sure, you can invite him, thinking that <laughs> was, he would never agree to come. And so when he did agree to come, it was like, okay, now we're in for now we're in for something. And so it was wonderful. That visit, he came, he came four times that year. We just loved him so much. And this was when we were still living in Baltimore. And um, so then the next, that the messiness from that was, okay, now I have, you know, this attachment to someone who's not in ISKCON. And so, Again, you know, having to, you know, I left all the, my family and, you know, my friends to become a devotee and almost had to redo it again in a sense that, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of devotees um, in ISKCON did kind of reject us for our, our choice of Shiksha Guru. And it was, it was. It sounds such- like, it sounds very similar to. You know, you were, you joined the temple and you were going on Hari Nam in Georgetown and you'd see all the people and now you're inviting Guru Maharaj to your house and then you have to go and be in all the relationships and see all the people you normally do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it was, it was, it was hard. And again, you're, you're like talking about someone who's very image conscious, who didn't want to do anything that was against the the fold, so to speak. And here I was put in that situation again. And and even, even Karnamrita challenged my image consciousness. I mean, you saw how, you know, he would wear very bold Radhakun Tilak and he would go, you know, everywhere. I mean, he wouldn't, you know, and he'd have his very bright t-shirts of Krishna and Ganesh, you know, and you know, he just, he did care what people thought he you know and I was the one that so I was constantly having to surrender to you know trying to give up my false ego with all the you know Krishna would just continue I mean it's not over I'm still still challenged with with different things like that and so but it's uh yeah it's just so interesting how Krishna doesn't let you escape from the lessons you need to learn. And yeah, I'm just very grateful for, for the life that Krishna kind of forced me to live. I mean, I kind of feel, you know, that intervention it was, a, that it was a true intervention to, you know, commit me to a, a whole nother life. I mean, I was committed into a psychiatric facility in the ashram for for the next 12 Mm -hmm. years. Prabhupada said something like that, like we're a hospital for devotees, the devotee hospital. So, um, but I'm forever grateful. And it gets, I can say that life, Krishna conscious life does become easier and the suffering does diminish because our minds become more peaceful. And as the anartas, 
and the chitta become, you know, removed more and more and more bhakti samskaras get implanted in their place. It's just, it becomes more and more of a joyful experience being a devotee. You don't have the same kind of conf inner conflicts anymore, suffering because your, your mind wants to do things that are not favorable to bhakti. I mean, all those things kind of fall away. Mm -hmm. So it's really beautiful to see that the process works it's, and being patient with it. I mean, 45 years is really not that long of a time. You know, some people think, oh, I've been a devotee 20 years and why am I not in Baba yet? You know, mm -hmm. but it's, yeah, it's just, a, oh, yeah, I'm, I know it's a, it's a long haul and, um, but it, we stick with it. We do, the, the fruits come, um, the lessons get learned. Um, you feel more and more of the shelter, more and more attraction for the goal of, you know, our eternal goal and feeling your relationship with Krishna and all of Vrindavan blossoming. So it's really, it's exciting to be able to see all the things that are supposed to happen, happening to some degree in our lives, just stay in, you know, just stick with it. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think, I think I can speak for um, everybody that knows you that we are so grateful for um, what you've brought to all of us and your relationship with all of us and um, your relationship with Karnamrita and bringing Karnamrita. Um, and um, it's been so nice to have you in the family and be part of the same family. Um, so thank you for sharing your journey. Um, is there anything else you wanna, that has come up that you, that you wanna speak about? Or um, is there anybody listening who would like to ask any questions to Arjunicity? You can yeah. post them in the chat or I think um, she or someone else can unmute you or you can unmute yourself. Yeah, they can unmute. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the question was how to talk about my meeting Srila Prabhupada and what marked my um, some instruction or something. So I have to say that um, I came in in 1976 to my joined Potomac Temple two months after Srila Prabhupada had been there in his last visit to the United States. So unfortunately, I never got to meet him personally. Um, I was initiated by him in um, one of the last initiations that he did. Um, and I would say that my relationship 
you know, with Srila Prabhupada, of course, was through his, his lectures and his books and the devotees. Um, and I remember at the time feeling cheated that I didn't get to, to meet him because I was so, so much intensely wanting to have his darshan, his personal darshan. But I, in retrospect, have seen that that might not have served me very well if I would have, for, for myself, and again, my psychology, um, it might have been harder for me to have allowed shiksha association, other gurus to have come into my life. Um, and, and I know that Krishna arranged it just perfectly. And I felt my relationship with Srila Prabhupada was very strong in, in from the service that I did. I distributed his books for years. And I would, you know, especially the first two, three years, I would be such, it would be so hard for me you know, I thought a lot of people were mean and rejecting me, rejecting me, you know, no, we don't want to talk to you. you know, we don't want to take your book. Um, anyway, so I would, I would go at least three times, four times a day into the bathroom and cry and, um, and ask Shil Prabhupada to give me strength because I just could not do the service anymore if he could if he didn't somehow help me so this went on every day for years so i would feel some kind of strength that so this is again talk about the hero's journey of getting empowerment through through prayer and i would come out and i would be able to kind of compose myself and go up to another person and almost always after one of those um, crying episodes, somebody would take a book. Well, just see you know, when the prayer worked. Oh, and then, and the other thing was that I, it would be like I'd be distributing books and after, you know, people were actually nice and they were taking books, there would be this very strange um, psychology that would, kind of take over like oh look at me I'm actually good at this I'm like you know and so then from from devastation to pride and you know it's just to me it was always so interesting to watch my mind how much it always was looking for a way to you know be puffed up about something you know ever, even a pauper is proud of his penny kind of thing so that was always interesting. Yeah, book distribution was a, a wonderful service to do to watch your mind. And Bhagavad Gita just came to life out, out there on the battlefield of the airport. It was it, it was it was a, a very um, purifying and I, I feel like any any kind of advancement that I made was from that service because it was so difficult and required a lot of prayer. So I hope that helps, Govinda Dasi. Um, thank you so much for that question.
Um, so it looks like, I think there's a couple, at least a couple more questions in Spanish and also Indra says, Indra Bahia. Uh, I love this interview a lot. Thank you. I was wondering how did your parents, family react when you became a devotee? Not very well. <laughs> so they did not react well. Yeah, my mother, she just, yeah, my brother, my younger brother told me that he went home and when he had gone home, my mother was just crying hysterically. And he was like, what happened? What's the matter? And she said, oh, Annie, that was my, my legal name, Anne. Annie just dropped out of school and moved into a Hare Krishna temple. And my brother was like, what? You know, it was like, he was, it was a, it was a shocking experience for them. There was no lead up to it. Like, I guess a lot of devotees, you know, it's more gradual. It's not like you just, I mean, my, my story, I think was a little unique in that way. So there was no prep, prep time for them to get them used to the idea that I was taking up a spiritual path and nothing so they actually thought that I had they you know they thought I had like a mental breakdown and re right after I joined Ted Patrick actually got in, in touch with them he was head of the oh, yeah. um, the anti-cult movement and he was contacting devotees you know young devotees parents to try to get them to let him you know pay him a lot of money to get them out of this cult and you know my parents were like thinking about it and then my father said no you know i don't want to push her over the edge and have her do what her brother did so in that way my brother's that was a, a service that my older brother had done for me because you know in that sense they um they were afraid that yeah i could follow his follow that lead and take my life so they didn't they didn't pursue it the uh, deprogramming so i hope that helps um so there are a couple of Yes, please. Mm. Advice to give to your hostess to advance in bhakti. And I would say, yeah, to, that, that you see that being a grahasta, being a couple, your relationship is support, supposed to be a support for your bhakti rather than your bhakti being a support for your relationship and keeping you know good sadhana is so important um i've been doing a lot of marriage counseling for the last 30 years and i would say the couples that do the best are the ones that do have strong sadhana together and it's when there isn't when that's not there, <clears throat> it's when it becomes, you know, much more, you know, again, you don't have that 
prophylactic container kind of helping you to not have all the reactivity of material energy. Um, just it's it's hard. Relationships are hard. They're hard and um, and and good practice, you know, being and keeping a, a, a Krishna conscious focus is is what can really make things work. And I don't know, Madan, what is your experience? You have three beautiful children and you've been married quite some time. What would you say? Uh, I was just um, agreeing with what you were saying that um, like I can't imagine having a relationship without a Christian conscious perspective. Um, like I, because relationships are really, really difficult. And if I didn't have a um, philosophical perspective, but also um, another perspective, I would just, I, I think I would be entirely frustrated because the world on its own, the material world is, it's not friendly and it's not workable. And um, I, Christian consciousness added makes everything possible, <laughs> but without it, I, I, so I can't imagine without um, having a partner um, also involved or my own perspective in practicing sadhana. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would happen. <laughs> so hope that, hope that is a helpful answer. Yes. Yes, and you need to repeat it, Madam, so that they can hear it on. Oh, I do. Book. No, they don't hear your voice across. Yeah. Oh. Chameleon. Yeah. Yeah, good question. So the question that um, Anapurna is asking is about psycho my psychology, how I was able to manage my chameleon-like nature, I'm trying to be please everyone and 
Um, I'm, I'm, I've been studying the Enneagram. I don't, it's, a, it's a, all about, you know, understanding different personality types. And it's a really wonderful, uh, it's helped me a lot in my own personal growth work and also in working as a therapist with devotees and really understanding the di people's natures and the different um, motivations that drive the different personality types and how we can get out of the traps of our conditioning. So it's very um, compatible with our spiritual journey. It's the, uh, very helpful for the Anarta Navritti process. So um, that helped me a lot understanding the nature. My, it's the, the, the personality of the two, the, which is the helper, the, the friend, the ever well-wisher type personality that, um, and, and really one of the challenge, biggest challenges for the two is, yes, wanting to, to please everybody. And um, so having that, just understanding that that was my personality type and it, and that I had these kinds of challenges that just helped me to be more aware of when I was doing it, when I was saying things that weren't really authentic, um, made me aware that um, I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be authentic. I wanted to be straightforward in my dealings. And I can tell you that Guru Maharaj helped me so much because he is such a straight shooter. He's so direct in his, in his nature, his personality type that it's just really helped me to, to see how, you know, it's possible to be like that. And, and if people don't like it, well, that's okay. You know, it's, um, <laughs> you're a lot happier in the end because you're, you're living your life for you instead of trying to live it for all the other people that are in your life. So I hope that's helpful. Sir Grahi, you want to ask your question? Yes, this is uh, Sarah Grahi's worst <laughs> half, Brigu. <laughs> Uh, today, but we're both here and we've both been Great. very much appreciating everything that, yes, everything that you've been saying and a and, uh, great job that you've been doing as well, Madame Gopal Prabhu, but, but wonderful things that, that we've heard from you, Arshana Siddhi, uh, Didi, so very, very many mm, thanks, thank so thanks to you for, for all of this. I had a question though, and that is that... Uh, uh, You've been speaking about uh, uh, Prabhupada and, and, and Guru Maharaj, of course, and the things that, that, that you've learned. Uh, but, but one thing that, that, that seems to me, uh, I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that you've also learned many things outside of the kind of institutional frame of Vaishnavism. Like you just mentioned the Enneagram and, mm. and, and, and so on. Would you like to say something about these kind of sources that, that come from outside of the scope of Vaishnavism, but that you've been able to, to take into Vaishnavism and, and make a, a part of, of your understanding of, of uh, relationships and, and so on. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's a, a very nice question. Yeah. Well, I would say again, you know, a lot of thanks to my, my, my dear departed husband who um, was very much um, into personal growth work when we met and and he also was um, a very avid book reader. He had a quite a library, um, thousands of books. <laughs> so he introduced me to again, you know, my my kind of more rigidness. You know, I think I, you that came across when he wanted me to start listening to Guru Maharaj, and I had some resistance. So I also had resistance to reading other books and, you know, even, you know, psychology books. And now I, you know, I put all that aside. I left school. I'm, you know, I don't need any of that. We just have to chant Hare Krishna, you know, it's all good. And so, <clears throat> so again, you know, his, he, he was just so always so patient with me. Um, never forced anything on me, but he would share, you know, he would share things that he was involved in and reading. And, um, you know, he, he, you know, he, a lot of different things that, you know, things like think and grow rich and, you know, just, to, yeah, he had such a library. I can't, you know, even begin to and, you know, he was into people like Tony Robbins and, um, you know, just, you know, how to make your life successful on a material level. And so we, you know, as devotees, we didn't really have that understanding so much. We were, you know, we, we knew how to, or we thought we knew how to make it successful on a spiritual level, but here we were now embarking in a, you know, as grahastas and, you know how yeah it, you have to work in the world you have to interface with the world and so you know how to how to win friends and you know influence enemies and you know all these kind of things can be you know a lot of useful communication you know nonviolent communication how how can you have empathic listening skills how can you develop you know just skills life skills that everybody needs and and would be very helpful even for devotees living in ashrams you know how do you communicate your feelings how do you you know a lot of a lot of psychology and so yeah so i would say you know different you know um we've we've found people that you know like in count couples counseling that like john gottman and some of his his books were have been very useful and helpful and helping to guide relationships and yeah the Enneagram for sure has been a, a huge um, help for me in, in doing my counseling yeah a lot of and in, in inner child work um, uh, John Bradshaw he, there's a lot of good stuff in in his books and you know that so I could yeah I could go on it for hours about that but <laughs> Um, if anyone had specific things, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of good, a lot of good psychology, personal growth books out there that are very compatible. And I love your purple shirt. <laughs> oh my gosh, look at you. 
Cardam would have loved that shirt. <laughs> Thank you. So did we lose Madan? No, no, did we? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so, Might be I really appreciated that question. Um, I just, I, I think that's part of um, what I was saying before that um, it's nice to see, like, I've seen this with a lot of devotees and it. I think it says something about their character that, um, you know, when they um, say householders or the more they become involved in, you know, the world and associating um, with everyday people or going to school or um, coming across different philosophies, um, that they bring that into their devotional life um, and Krishnaize it, um, whatever you want to call it. I, I just, to me, that um, makes me appreciate those, what those devotees have, because at the center of their um, life is is bhakti, so they're taking all of that and and um, blurring the lines. Like you know, when I was a temple devotee, the lines were so clear. It was like everything is Krishna, and then there's this line, and everything else is Maya. And so the people outside of the temple, and the philosophies, and the books, and the um, but I I just appreciate seeing devotees who. Um, by for force of circumstance or their own personalities or whatever they get involved and um, it, it becomes the whole world is actually, which is the truth, the, the whole world is an opportunity for service for, um, so anyway, I, I see you and Karnamita's those type of people who've, who've done that and it's just inspiring and does, does anybody else have any um, questions or please ask it? Right after. Not sure I understand the question. So I'm thinking he's saying, um, how did you deal with Prabhupada's departure or how did that oh, affect you? Okay, okay, Prabhupada's departure. Yes. Um yeah, it was it was a very sad um time for all of us because I don't think we really any of us felt like we were ready to have Shil Prabhupada not on the planet with us we were all kids you know and he was like our only you know our only real elder spiritual guide and um and it was it was uh it was a really it was a difficult time and um I mean, we were fortunate that we had some good guidance from senior devotees at that time. And um, I think that's what 
you know, really helped me to get through it was knowing that there were um, competent people um, that understood the teachings that could, you know, the parampara, yeah, it's, that's, uh, you know, the whole idea of parampara is that these teachings get passed passed down from the guru to the disciples. So I had faith that things would go on. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a messy time. I mean, it's still a messy time in many ways for the, you know, this kind of society. I don't think that they've fully, you know, they haven't sorted things out since Prabhupada's departure. And I think we're going to see a lot of, a, a lot of, Maybe frat more more um, divisions in, in this in the future and um, break off groups and and that you know that just may be all part of what has to happen for for things to go on in a healthy way. Sometimes that's that's a necessary part of the process. So and out of messiness, there's joy. Out of messiness, joy comes. That's yes. Yes. Joy in the messiness of spiritual yes. life. Yes. So <laughs> that. So yeah. It was. It, it. It. You know. It was. It was a trying time, but Krishna arranged it perfectly for for all of us. I mean, it. It didn't seem like it at the time. It. It seemed very premature, but that Krishna took him. So we had to. We had to accept. What could we do? We could. You know. Some devotees did leave. They left the, their spiritual path altogether. So, yeah, and and somehow Krishna did protect us. Um, not that there weren't challenges and messy stuff that happened along the way. So that probably would be a good note to end on, Madam. We have limited over our limit. <laughs> oh, okay. So who uh, is the, so thank you very much. Um, I look Next forward to week, you being the interviewer from now on. Uh, huh? I look forward to you continuing the interviewing. Well, you can, you can help me. If you okay. ever feel you want to jump in and do the interview, that would be great. Anyway, it's so, an invitation. Um, you can think about it. Next okay. week is Saragrahi Devi Dasi. Yay. So we look forward to that interview. And um, I'm sure Brigupad will be in the background with his purple shirt, just cheering her on. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Madan, for, for pulling yes, me I'm, out. I'm, I'm glad we finally today. got you on. <laughs> I appreciate you insisting I do this. It was fun. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. And that's what my son, my son said right before the interview. He said, have fun, mom. <laughs> and I was that's like, that's a, it's a true Nitai Garanga blessing. Have fun. It's got to be fun. <laughs> yeah. Me too. It's always got to be fun. It's got to be fun. You guys are so much alike. Thank <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, thank you. And thank you so much, Akura and um, Guru Bhakya for doing the doing the um, interpret interpreter's job, which is not easy. So really appreciate it. Yeah, so you can yeah share it. Um, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you very much, Arch in the City, Devi Dasi. Jai. Jai. Gopal ki jai. Jai. Hare Krishna.